Well, if you're just tuning in, we're in a series, as you see on the screen, through the uh, New Testament book of Revelation. Um, if you want to turn there in your Bible, there are Bibles at the back, and you can grab one of those. Um, if you have a personal device, go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 2. Um, but actually, we're going to go back one chapter to chapter 1. Um, what we find in, in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are uh, letters from Jesus Christ himself, the risen, glorified Jesus who appeared to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. It's a little island in the Aegean Sea. He was there as an exile because uh, he wouldn't give up and he wouldn't shut up about the gospel and about the word of God and uh, the uh the Roman emperor exiled him to that island. It was while he was there that he had a, a powerful vision of Jesus Christ, and uh, that's what is written in this book of Revelation. But in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, we read this from John. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And remember, we said that that phrase, in the Spirit, means prepped to prophesy. That's the that's best, simplest way of expressing what that means. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are churches in uh, seven cities in the Roman province at that time of Asia, which is now Western Turkey. Um, and as we've been making note, each of these churches was literal in existence. That is, they were real people in a real place, in a real church, in real time. Um, each one, each letter is spiritual in significance. There's, there's spiritual uh, power and dynamic that we draw from these letters, and they're practical in relevance. In other words, they're the things that they call us to, the things they instruct us about, have practical relevance for our lives. And this morning I invite you to join me in examining the letter of Jesus to the church in the city of Thyatira. Uh, I've learned recently in my studies that uh, the Greek pronounces Theatira. Um, <clears throat> my Greek lexicon said it should be pronounced Thuatira. Uh, I grew up pronouncing it Thyatira. I'm going to stick with that. But last week we were in Pergamum. Uh, and so if we look at the map, there it is. There's Pergamum up at the top. We started in Ephesus. We went to Smyrna, then Pergamum. And uh, Thyatira then is uh, on the road that runs down from Pergamum all the way to Laodicea. Um, about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum is the city of Thyatira, at least the ruins of ancient Thyatira, what's left of them. And they're surrounded today by the modern city of Akisar, Turkey, um, population 178,000. It's a city that's situated on a fertile plain near the Great Zab River, which is, uh, I, I just think that's an awesome name for a river, Great Zab. Great Zab River, and, and known for production and uh, export of tobacco. Uh, most of the tobacco in Turkey is uh, grown right there in that region. Uh, also olives, olive oil, walnuts, almonds, and a, a whole uh, list of, of other things. 
Thyatira was built by a guy named Seleucus Nicator. He was uh, one of Alexander the Great's generals in the 3rd century B.C. He built Thyatira as a military garrison to protect protect the northern defenses of the, uh, the Greek Empire. It was later transitioned into a Macedonian colony, uh, similar to what we saw about the city of Philippi. It was like a, a little uh, Rome away from Rome. Uh, Thyatira became part of the Roman Republic then in 133 B.C. Uh, and was one of the major cities in, in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, in Thyatira, gods such as Zeus and Artemis and Demeter and Athena were worshipped. A coin from uh, the reign of Vespasian suggests that a temple to uh, the emperor Trajan may have been may have existed there by at least 79 A.D. In 79 A.D. it would have been the emperor Titus, but uh, as John was speaking, Trajan was the emperor. But but the major focus of worship in this city was the god Apollo. Um, not the pizza joint, but the actual god. In Greek mythology, uh, Apollo was the sun god. He was uh, the son of Zeus, twin with Artemis, uh, whom the Greeks venerated as the most high god, uh, king of kings. And so Apollo was called uh, the son of God. Uh, and if the first three cities we have studied uh, were kind of a big deal themselves, Thyatira didn't fit that mold. It really wasn't of special significance, whether political or religious. It's kind of a symbolic that the ruins of Thyatira are the smallest and the least preserved of all the seven cities. Um, archaeologists have revealed little about Thyatira from the New Testament. Uh, brief excavations uncovered a Roman street, uh, part of a public building, while Explorations at the site also discovered several inscriptions uh, and coins. The reality is that the the ruins of Thyatira still lie buried beneath the streets and the buildings of modern Akisar, which means they may may never be excavated, with the exception of the Roman theater. Um, if, If Thyatira was known for anything at all, it was for commercial rather than political or religious distinction in the first century. Uh, Though not well known in ancient history, Thyatira gained a reputation as a a Bruce Springsteen kind of blue-collar town. Um, According to inscriptions found at Thyatira, industries in that city uh, included um, agricultural produce. Um, Say hi to whoever that is for us. Agricultural produce, uh, wool, linen, baking. There was a heavy slave trade there. Also leather, iron, brass, bronze, silver, pottery, dyed fabrics. And and the distinction and what I want you to understand this morning is that each of those crafts had its own guild. Um, and a trade guild was similar to a, a labor union. And for every member, the, the guild represented not only their work, but it functioned as the heart of their religious and social life as well. Um, You might say that more than a professional association, they were more like uh, large extended families. Each 
guild had its own patron deities, um, had feasts, seasonal activities. Their, uh, their feasts always included worship of, of their patron deities, so pagan worship, um, eating of food, sacrifice to idols, Deviant sexual activity, usually their festivals would turn into orgies. The, the set of circumstances created really serious problems, as you might imagine, for the residents of Thyatira who were coming to faith in Christ. What was a Christian to do? It was a closed shop town, um, which is union speak for if you don't, if you aren't part of the union, if you're not part of the guild, you don't work. And if you didn't participate, you not only offended the guild, but you were guilty of offending the guild's deities. So the only option for the guild was to expel the Christian member, which would result, of course, in loss of employment, hence loss of income, loss of their home, Loss of the loss of social network, loss of social status. Uh, so every Christian in Thyatira had a choice: Jesus or their job. We're not exactly sure how Thyatira was was evangelized. Uh, there's no record, for example, that Paul or any of his associates physically visited Thyatira. In fact, this city is only mentioned twice in the entire New Testament. One of those is right here in the first two chapters of Revelation. It's been suggested that some of Paul's converts at Ephesus, remember he spent two years there, some of his converts there went out and evangelized Thyatira. You may recall from our series through the Acts of the Apostles that as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so what happened in Ephesus didn't stay in Ephesus. It, it just rippled out, uh, throughout the larger region. The other mention of Thyatira <clears throat> is also found in Acts chapter 16. Paul and company had arrived for the first time in the Roman colony of Philippi. And Luke records on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so... Lydia was probably a wealthy woman. She probably had the distinction of having one of the larger homes in Philippi. And in fact, Paul and his associates stayed in the home of Lydia uh, for uh, the duration of their time in that city. So maybe it was Lydia, you know, a newborn in Christ uh, who returned to her home in Thyatira and was at least instrumental in planting the Christian church there. So however, and, and, and by whomever, We know that a church was planted, um, a growing church existed there in that city of Thyatira, where being a Christ follower came with a steep price, and where navigating the pagan environment posed significant moral and spiritual challenges. 
You know, it's really true of the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, that um, we tend to thrive in, in adversity. Some, some almost axiomatic spiritual principle it says of the Israelites in Egypt that the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and spread. And that's kind of been true throughout the history of the church. Well, let's stand together then and read uh, this passage of Scripture, uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as in all the letters, uh, all the seven letters here in, in chapters 1 to 3, Jesus begins with a description of himself. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice Jesus first identifies himself as the Son of God. It's interesting that in all of the book of Revelation, uh, the title Son of God um, appears only here. It's a designation for Messiah, but the name might also have captured the attention of those who were engaged in emperor worship. They called Caesar the Son of God. Uh, it might also have been met with objections by the entire population of Thyatira, who regarded Apollo the son of Zeus as the Son of God. And Jesus' identification of himself by that title probably also anticipates his quotation in verse 27 from the second psalm, and we'll come to that a little later. When John first encountered the glorified Jesus Christ in chapter 1, he recorded this description of Jesus. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. How many of you just resonate and love that description? I, you know, I, I love that. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And this is reminiscent of Daniel's description 
of his encounter in Daniel 10 with an angel on the banks of the Tigris River. He, he reported, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. Uh, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And then in Revelation 19, uh, towards the end of this book, verses 11 to 13, Jesus appears as a warrior on a white horse who judges, who makes war in righteousness. And, And John again says of him that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Well, what does the image of eyes like a flame of fire convey to us? I don't know. But at least this, that that nothing is hidden from his eyes, that that nothing escapes his notice. I had a professor in college who uh, who had the most piercing eyes. He he could drill a hole through you with his eyes. I, and I think Jesus, with his eyes of fire, sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his notice. His eyes search out every sin, for example, so as to to execute judgment on all sin and all impurity. He also sees our faithfulness. He also sees our works, our love. Job wrote, for his eyes are on the ways of of a man, and he sees all his steps. David added in Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes... See, his eyelids test the children of man. Solomon reflected, Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And here in chapter 2, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God whose feet are like burnished bronze, The word Jesus uses is an unusual one. Um, I've been trying to practice pronouncing this, but uh, I'm sure I'm going to butcher it. Call Kolibanon. There you go. Call Kolibanon. And in all of the Bible, it's found only here. It apparently represents some kind of alloy of precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, brass. But the point here doesn't seem to be on its quality as a metal, the strength of the metal, or the brilliance of its appearance in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the brazen altar and other items that that were made of burnished bronze uh, were used in connection with sacrifice for sin. Jesus is reminding John here, and I, I think, and his readers that that one of the purposes for which he stands among the lampstands, and that was the, that picture from chapter 1 of Jesus appearing among the lampstands, the lampstands representing the churches. Jesus stands among the lampstands. He stands among the churches in order to execute judgment. And you say, judgment? Why judgment on Christians? Because the church often needs judgment. The church often needs correction. The church often needs rebuke. And, and sometimes straight on discipline, straight on punishment. We saw that last week 
uh, at Pergamum and what Jesus was intending to do there. So those two elements, the, the eyes of fire and the, the feet like burnished bronze, indicate that, that Christ, the Son of God, had broken into John's world from the realm of heaven and that he brought with him all of the power, all of the authority of the divine Son of God. From the description, he moves to a commendation. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. There was a lot to admire about this church in Thyatira. There, there was a lot to affirm about them. There's, there's a lot that we maybe could emulate, imitate or emulate about the church in Thyatira. The church, in spite of the incredible pressures that they clearly faced, seemed to be on an upward trajectory. Um, their works in the name of Jesus were increasing. And they were characterized by love and faith and patient endurance, all good things. One thing that this church couldn't be accused of is mere religious activity. Things were too real in Thyatira all the time for them to be messing around. Jesus' words call to mind Paul's commendation of the Christians in Thessalonica where he wrote, we are always thankful as we pray for you all. Paul was from the south, you know. We're always thankful as we pray for y'all. For we never forget that your faith has meant solid achievement, your love has meant hard work, and the hope that you have in our Lord Jesus Christ means sheer dogged endurance in the life that you live before God, the Father of us all. In his book, Revealing Revelation, Amir Tsarfati commented here, he says, works, love, faith, and perseverance, what more could any church want from its members? Most churches today would love to hear those words of commendation from the Lord. But this church had one glaring problem. It tolerated sin. It tolerated sin. So in spite of so much that was really good, so much that was praiseworthy about the life of this community of believers. Christ, with his eyes of fire, could see beneath the surface, and down there he saw a poisonous weed beginning to grow in this church. A dark spot of malignant cancer eating away their vitality from the inside out. And for that reason, of all the seven churches, this this. This little church in this little town receives the most decisive rebuke. And it's there in verses 20 to 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works." 
After praising those in Thyatira who were faithful, Christ identifies two other distinct groups in that church. Uh, One was actively engaged in wickedness. The other, including the leadership, tolerated it. So these three groups coexisted in the church. The faithful, the tolerant, and Jezebel and her ill-fated followers. You might think of them as the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church in Thyatira. Uh, her name, this woman in Thyatira, was almost certainly not Jezebel. And uh, when you hear that word Jezebel, you, you just kind of cringe, don't you? I mean, <laughs> that's where this that expression, that lion Jezebel, comes from. Uh, So this woman's name was probably not Jezebel. Instead, the way that she operated so profoundly resembled Jezebel, queen of Israel, one of the most evil characters of the Old Testament, that Jesus assigned it to this woman in Thyatira as a nickname. Um, You can read the original Jezebel story in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapters 16 to 21, and then there's, uh, in the chapters that follow that and into early part of Second Kings, there are little fragments, but um, most of it is in, in, in 16 through 21. Jezebel, <clears throat> her name was probably actually pronounced Iazabel, um, but she was not an Israelite, nor was she a Jewess. She, she was a pagan Phoenician who married... Ahab, the weakling king of Israel, one of the worst kings Israel ever had. When she married Ahab, or actually pronounced Ahab, she she corrupted Israel by bringing with her hundreds of prophets of the god Baal. Uh, And in turn, she persecuted the true prophets of God. In fact, she imprisoned uh, about a thousand of them. She did all that she could to stamp out the true worship of God in Israel. By the way, if you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, uh, those prophets were prophets that Jezebel had brought with her when she married Ahab. Uh, she was deceptive. She was idolatrous. She was domineering. She was scheming. She was vicious. Uh, and besides all that, she was a very pleasant person. But... <laughs> Because of Jezebel's influence on King Ahab, the scriptures record in 1 Kings 16.33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And in chapter 21, verse uh, verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Uh, Ahab eventually died a horrible death in a battle against the Syrians. Uh, Jezebel died when she was thrown from the top of a tower and her body, her broken body, was eaten by dogs. It would seem then that just as the original Old Testament Jezebel led Israel astray and persecuted the true prophets of God, so this woman at Thyatira uh, was teaching and seducing 
Christians to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. One of the things that I've noticed um, that really stood out to me this this time through Revelation is is the pairing of those two phrases, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Because what we're looking at when you see those paired, and we've seen them several times now already here in Revelation 1 and 2, you're talking about ritual pagan worship that involved sexual immorality. That is, that the sexual acts were part and parcel of the, the worship of those pagan gods. Notice with me that there were two aspects to her strategy. The first involved teaching. Teaching. In verse 24, it seems that she advertised her teaching as the deep things of Satan. Just imagine if we were to offer a class here at LifePoint on the, the deep things of Satan. Come and learn the deep things of Satan. In ancient mystery religions, as in cultic groups today, like the Masonic Lodge, for example, there was emphasis on secret knowledge that, that would be revealed in the course of rituals that were exclusive to the initiated And in the case of Thyatira, the teaching may have been that something like this, that the real nature of sin could only be understood, could only be learned by experience, and therefore only those who had really experienced the depths and the darkness of sin could truly appreciate grace. So go ahead and participate in the idolatrous and immoral practices of the guilds. And when you do, you'll be better equipped to serve the Lord Jesus. It reminds me of, uh, you know, when I, when I was a kid growing up, some of you will remember this in, in the churches you were part of. There used to be these things called testimony services. Any of you remember those? And uh, you know, the church would gather. It might have been an uh, like an evening service on a Sunday, or maybe it was around a campfire somewhere, and, and people would just share their testimonies. They share the story of how they came to faith in Christ. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm just a boy from Bellingham, and I'm kind of a garden variety sinner, nothing really exciting has ever happened in my life with regard to sin. Uh, and then I'd hear, you know, I'd hear stories from people, and uh, you know, the Jesus revolution was happening, and so all these people were coming to faith in Christ, from drug addiction and the hell's angels and witchcraft and all this stuff. And I used to think, man, I've got a boring testimony. And I was tempted to kind of just, you know, spice it up a little bit, you know, just create a little story, <laughs> which would kind of be contradictory to the purpose. But um, I heard, a, I heard a, a young woman express something similar in a uh, a testimony service, something I actually saw online, and she said, oh, I just have this kind of boring story. I was born in a Christian home, and I was raised in a church, and uh, but I I trust in Jesus. She goes, kind of boring. She sat down, and and the the pastor came up and said, sweetheart, we're all trying to raise kids with really boring testimonies. So so there you have it. Second aspect of Jezebel's strategy involved seduction. Seduction. By, by setting seduction alongside teaching, uh, it, it would seem that her plan also involved, doesn't it, some extracurricular influence that led not only to, 
to intellectual deception, but also then to moral confusion. Jesus also confronts those who were tolerant of Jezebel's deceptive, diabolical activities. In fact, this is at the heart of Jesus' rebuke of the leadership of the church in Thyatira. Why do I say leadership? Because if you'll remember, we saw in chapter 1, and in each of these letters, uh, the opening line is, you know, to the, to the um, angel of the church in, in the name of the city, write. Write to the angel of the church in each city. And we saw that the angel was uh, probably not a celestial angel, probably the leadership of the church, the pastor. And, and so Jesus is, is rebuking the pastor, the elders perhaps, of the church in Thyatira. Charles Swindoll labeled Thyatira as the church where tolerance went to seed. <laughs> Love that expression. The church where tolerance went to seed. Think about the, the emphasis in our society. I can't even speak. The emphasis in our society today on tolerance uh, of a wide array of moral issues. Uh, tolerance is one of the buzzwords in our society today when it comes to more morality. Uh, and as a result, we can often feel intimidated, we can feel hesitant to really call sin what it is. And in fact, one could easily get the impression that tolerance is of such high value to us that it ought to rank right up there among the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's ascended to the pinnacle of our cultural's of our of our culture's value system. You know, tolerance used to mean that that though you disagreed, maybe you disapproved of someone's beliefs, of their values, their their lifestyles, you acknowledged their right to believe and to live as they chose. Today. Tolerance is increasingly being defined as acceptance, as approval, of, as validation and normalization of every kind of radical, morally deviant behavior that demands affirmation as a legitimate alternative lifestyle. I don't, I don't have to list them because you're thinking about them right now. We're being called upon to become proponents of an ideology bordering on religion, and we might call that religion tolerationism. Tolerationism. And it requires the abandonment of spiritual and moral truth. A culture that, that tolerates evil calls disagreement phobia. If you disagree, you're, you're phobic. Taking a stand for a moral issue is often called hate. You're a hater. Conviction is seen as bigotry and fanaticism. Holding to biblical doctrine is, is regarded as discrimination. Instead of tolerance, Jesus calls for repentance. He gave this Jezebel time to repent. Here's what that tells me. It tells me that, that she had heard and understood the truth. Uh, the Holy Spirit had been 
in some way working on her heart. She understood what she needed to do, but she ultimately refused, and her time ran out. And he announces four things that are about to happen. First, he was going to throw her onto a sickbed. If you'll allow me a little color here, I think Jezebel had been thrown onto lots of beds. But in this case, Jesus is going to throw her onto a sick bed. She's going to be struck with an illness. And the scene of her sin would become the scene of her sickness. Secondly, verse 22, Jesus says that those who committed adultery with her we're going to be thrown into great tribulation. Now, don't make the mistake here of interpreting this as the great tribulation with a capital G and a capital T. That seven-year period that will follow the rapture that will be worse than anything our world has ever seen. So I can just picture you're going to be in your life group and pastor, you're going to, somebody's going to say, Pastor Jim said the great tribulation is going to come and they're going to be part of it. That's not what he's talking about here. Tribulation with a little t. Um, trouble. <laughs> I'm thinking of that line from the music man right now. <laughs> trouble in River City with a capital T that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. He's talking about trouble in their own lives that will relent only when they repent of their sin, the sin that she led them into. Third, in verse 23, he says he's going to strike her children dead. Two things here. This this may be a reference to her physical offspring born of her fornication. Or it may be a reference to those who followed her teaching. But the words Jesus uses here are clear. The word he uses for death is thanatos, and it always means physical death. He's saying they're going to die because they followed her. Fourth, all of this, Jesus says, will be a lesson to the churches. Verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, and I will give to each of you and I repeated myself. It's remarkable that that Christ would single out this very small church in a relatively obscure city for such an important letter. Because the message reaches far beyond the immediate circumstances at Thyatira, doesn't it? It's reached all of the churches since then that have bothered to take the time to read and Respond in repentance. It's an unmistakable, unescapable truth in God's word that personal holiness is an indispensable mark of the Christian life. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles 
who do not know God. See, holiness is, is not only God's will for our lives, it's his purpose. It's the purpose of the Father's election. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's the purpose of the death of God's Son. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. And it's the purpose of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And so here are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the eternal Godhead, united in one purpose, which is to make you and me holy to make us holy. See, if it's God's purpose to make us holy, then we can anticipate that it's Satan's purpose to frustrate our growth towards holiness. And we can expect that his strategies of frustration will come against us. It's not just someone else. If you choose to follow Jesus... That frustration will come your direction. True believers can fall into sin. True believers do fall into sin. You do, I do in so many ways. And when we do, God's call, God's simple call to us is to repent. Simple in the issuance of the call, difficult in the response. The word repent means, first of all, to change our minds about our sin. To think of our sin the way God thinks of it. And then to confess our sin, which means to say the same thing about our sin that God says. And then to change our conduct in humble obedience to God. Sometimes we think of repentance only in very emotional terms. But but that's not even there in the word. It means to change your mind and, and in the changing of your mind to change your conduct. It certainly can involve the emotions. But if all it is is emotion, it'll never last. It can be so attractive. It can be so alluring to justify immorality, whether of the sexual nature or otherwise, in the name of grace. And when we do, we'll find ourselves aligned with Jezebel and company and liable to the same discipline. Again, in his book, Revealing Revelation, Amir Tsarfati wrote, there is a point when God will eventually say, that's enough. You've had time. I've given you many opportunities to change your attitudes and your actions, but you have refused. Therefore, this is what I'm about to do. You don't want to get to that place in your church, and you don't want to get to that place in your life. God is holding out forgiveness to you, no matter what you have done or are currently doing. Make the change now. Let him cleanse you of your sin. Put yourself on the path of righteousness and hope and joy. Finally, almost finally, Jesus comes to instruction. And his instruction to the faithful at Thyatira is actually 
Pretty simple. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast what you have until I come. This is the first mention in the book of Revelation of the Lord's coming for the church. Uh, the event that, that we commonly call the rapture. You can read about that in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And for many of us, losing our jobs, losing our homes, might well feel like the end of our lives. Like the worst possible thing that could happen. Jesus wants them to know that for Christians, temporal loss isn't the end. The end game for the Christian is holding fast to Jesus until he comes. We often say he's coming soon. May not be soon, according to our timetable. We don't know for sure when he's coming. Seems like he's coming soon. For the one who holds fast, Jesus promises reward. Reward. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. The residents of Thyatira with its with its metalwork and pottery industries, might well perk up when Jesus spoke to them about a rod of iron and and broken pottery. But there's another clear reference here. In Psalm 2, God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel speaking to Jesus. So Jesus just said, I, just as I received authority from my Father, this is going to be your experience too. He's, he's promising to share that authority with the ones who conquer, who hold fast to him until he comes. And I think that there's a reference here to the millennial kingdom when, when the redeemed will rule and reign with him over the nations. To his own disciples, Jesus said in Matthew 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus also promises the morning star to the one who holds fast. What's he saying? He's saying, I'll give you myself. I'll give you myself. I am your inheritance. I am your reward. Jesus is the bright and morning star revolution. Revolution, Revelation 22, he says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You know, the, the morning star appears in the night sky at the darkest hour of the night. The darkest, coldest moment in the 24 our cycle, the morning star shows up. Maybe you're in a a place of darkness and coldness today. 
And here's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to shine on you. He wants to cast his light on you. He wants to light up your darkness. And he wants to give you himself. There's a warning in verses eight, uh, verse 29. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And th- that's a an echo of something that's stated multiple times in the Old Testament, that having ears they cannot hear, having eyes they do not see. And Jesus said that of the Jewish people in Jerusalem when they would not listen to what he had to say. Do you have an ear? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, you know, as you, as you review the, the first four messages to the churches, you, you can see uh, the dangers that still exist for us as the people of God. Like Ephesus, we can be zealous, we can be orthodox, but at the same time, abandon our devotion to Christ, abandon our first love. Or like Thyatira, our our love can be increasing and, and yet lacking in the kind of discernment that's necessary to keep the church pure, keep our own lives pure. And like Pergamum and Thyatira, we may be so tolerant of evil that that we grieve the Lord and we invite his judgment. See, neither unloving orthodoxy, you know, grouchy religion, (laughs) nor undiscerning love, nor willing tolerance of evil meet Christ's righteous expectation of us. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did to the Philippians. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we say thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it speaks from 2,000 years ago and beyond, right down into our hearts and our lives, our motivations, our personal lives, our private lives even our private sin, secret sin. Lord, would you call us to repentance? Would you give us not only the desire to do what you want, but the power to do it? May we not be forgetful hearers of your word, but effective doers. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our judge and our savior. Amen.